Hi, my name is Gary Myers. And I'm Joe Fontenot. And we're the hosts of the Answering the Call podcast. And this is the podcast where we talk to people who are answering God's call. Today our guest is Rob Bowman. This is another one of our Defend podcasts. Rob talks about how the Book of Mormon uses the Sermon on the Mount almost verbatim. Matter of fact, it's kind of a funny story. Marilyn interviews him and she gets he talks more about it. But it's very interesting how well he plagiarizes. Not Rob, but Joseph Smith. Interesting. It was quite interesting. Uh, one of my favorites, just fascinating history. I'm looking forward to this. Let's hear from Rob. Uh, Rob, you've done a lot of different work, lots of books. I don't even know how many books you've you've <laughs> written, but quite a few, and uh, in ver- v- many different areas. Uh, a lot on the Trinity, a lot on Mormonism, and uh, you have your dissertation uh, is on the Book of Mormon and the Sermon on the Mount. And that sounds very odd to someone who's not familiar with either one, but uh, the Sermon on the Mount has been taken from the Bible and included in the Book of Mormon. So there's a whole lot there. So let's start with just simply what the Book of Mormon is and and, uh, talk a little bit about that. Sure thing. Well, the Book of Mormon is the foundational text of the Mormon religion, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as well as some splinter groups. It was published in early 1830 by Joseph Smith after it uh, had been uh, written out by hand the year before. Uh, He dictated it to some scribes, one mostly, uh, Oliver Cowdery. It was written out longhand, and then it was made, there was a copy made longhand, and then they printed it in 1830. Joseph Smith claimed that the book was originally written on gold plates that an angel had entrusted to him and that he was translating what was on the gold plates by the gift and power of God. That's the expression that he used. Mm -hmm. The basic storyline of the Book of Mormon, to keep it very simple, is a storyline of about a thousand years, beginning in the uh, 6th century BC, around the time that the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple uh, that Solomon had built. Uh, a group of Israelites from Jerusalem, a family and, the, and some associates of theirs, fled Jerusalem about that time, according to the story, and uh, traveled through Arabia, built a ship, and sailed to the Americas somewhere, mm-hmm. where they and another group of Israelites who, had done the, who did the same thing uh, eventually merged into a, a nation, if you will, a, a, a civilization that uh, flourished for about a thousand years called the Nephites, named after the, the main son of the founder or, or, or mm-hmm. patriarch of this particular family that had sailed to the Americas. Uh, during that thousand-year period, Jesus Christ, of course, had lived, died, and risen from the dead, according to the Bible. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, after Jesus' ascension, he goes to the Americas and he preaches to the Nephites. And this is all according to the Book of Mormon. According to the Book Mm -hmm. of Mormon. Mm -hmm. And uh, the centerpiece or highlight of that particular uh, part of the Book of Mormon is Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, almost exactly as it reads in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the King James Version. Hmm. Now, let me me just kind of interrupt right there, because the Book of Mormon has got... uh, 
many historical problems. And so we could spend a lot of time talking about that, uh, some of the uh, sailing on the ship, different things like that. We could spend time there. But yes, I am very curious about uh, Joseph Smith translating, and yet Sermon on the Mount and other passages from the Bible have been lifted particularly from the King James. So go ahead. I'll let you continue. Sure. Well, just to to sort of close the storyline, according to Mm -hmm. the Book of Mormon, a few hundred years after Jesus had appeared to the Nephites and established a a church in the Americas, uh, that church became apostate. The uh, uh, The Nephite civilization ended up being conquered by their uh, evil brethren, their unbelieving brethren, the Lamanites, mm-hmm. who are also largely descended from Israelites, uh, the same Israelite groups, if not entirely from those groups. And the Lamanites were all that was left after this uh, climactic battle. And supposedly the last of the Nephite prophets buried the gold plates near Joseph Smith's home in upstate New York. Then that same being resurrected now as an angelic being Uh, appeared to Joseph Smith in the 1820s, showed him where the plates were, and authorized him to translate them. So that is supposedly Mm -hmm. how we got the Book of Mormon, according to the Mormon story itself. Okay. All right. And uh, this is, by the way, uh, which I don't know if we'll have time to get to today, but uh, the Book of Mormon is reenacted many times in different pageants across the nation, and one in particular is at Manti, Utah, uh, which very recently, I believe, they have decided to close that after this year. Yes, they're so, going to discontinue the Manti pageant, mm-hmm. and they are about to discontinue the one in Palmyra, New York, which is near Joseph's boyhood home where this was all supposedly uh, mm-hmm. started. And that I, that might be next year is the mm-hmm. last one, okay. according to the, the church's announcement. So, yeah, those pageants are about to uh, come to an end. I'm hoping to go to the Palmyra pageant this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been to the, Magi, the Manti pageant a couple mm-hmm. of times, but uh, I've never been to Palmyra, so I'm hoping to go do that. Sure. Now, uh, this is interesting to me that in the place where this great battle between the Nephites and the Lamanites took place, that that would seem to be a rich historical resource for, um, I don't know, finding things from archaeological items from that era, but they have found nothing. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Uh, assuming that the uh, hillside where Joseph found the plates mm-hmm. is somehow connected to the last you know, battle, the mm-hmm. site of the last battle between the Nephites and Lamanites, uh, virtually all Mormon scholars today deny that that's the case. They claim that the battle took place in ancient Mesoamerica, mm-hmm. basically in southern Mexico, and that uh, the Book of Mormon lands were restricted to that region of southern Mexico and Guatemala. And that would mean, of course, that uh, Moroni, the uh, being who later on appeared to Joseph Smith, uh, the last Nephite prophet, would have had to walk Mm -hmm. from uh, Mexico to New York State and bury the plates so Joseph could find them. 1700 or 1600 years or whatever it was 1400 years later excuse me in 18 at uh, the 1820s so yeah there are a lot of problems there uh, but what really interested me about the book of mormon was its use of the bible and yes. that was the focus of my dissertation mm-hmm. yes and uh, there are many passages tell us about the sermon on the mount 
Well, as I mentioned in the Book of Mormon, Jesus appears to the Nephites and he starts a church and he tells them about himself and what he did and and uh, gives them some prophecies for themselves and quotes passages from Malachi and mm-hmm. Isaiah, interesting enough. Mm-hmm. But he also delivers to them the Sermon on the Mount, virtually identical as we find in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, The the sermon in its Book of Mormon context contains some minor uh, changes to what we would call Matthew 5. Mm -hmm. There's a number of those changes, some hard sayings about, you know, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. That that gets cut off. (laughs) That gets omitted from the passage. Not Apparently Joseph Smith Mm -hmm. didn't like that statement. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, then when, as Joseph is dictating uh, the sermon uh, that Jesus supposedly delivered to the Nephites, when he gets into chapter 6 and 7, he stops mm-hmm. making any changes, and it's virtually uh, letter-perfect, identical to the King James Version, especially in Matthew 7, mm-hmm. comparing what's called Third Nephi 14. And so it's not just that it's copied from Matthew, which is itself a problem, but that it's clearly copied from the King James Version. This isn't the only place this happens. Earlier in the Book of Mormon, uh, there is a stretch of a pass a stretch of passages from uh, Isaiah that includes Isaiah two through fourteen, so thirteen chapters of Isaiah without a break, and it's ninety six percent verbally identical to the King James version, including. Uh, wordings that really should not have been preserved uh, if it was an authentic uh, translation from the gold plates. So, for example, the reference in Isaiah to Lucifer, mm-hmm. which is based on the Latin version of Isaiah, mm-hmm. is retained and is a misunderstanding of the passage, uh, is retained in the Book of Mormon quotation from Isaiah. Here again, uh, Joseph Smith makes a lot of changes in the early. A run of mm-hmm. those chapters that he's quoting from Isaiah, but then the last few chapters he makes virtually no changes at all. Mm-hmm. This is what uh, academics call redactional fatigue. That is, he just got tired of making little yes. changes and made almost no changes in the last uh, part of that dictation. He just took it wholesale. And this, we mm-hmm. see that, so we see that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in, in, in the Book of Mormon, and we see it in Isaiah 2 through 14 in the mm-hmm. Book of Mormon, this redactional fatigue, where he starts off zealously making all kinds of little changes to make it appear that it's an independent work, mm-hmm. and then toward the end he just just says what's in the King James. Yeah. Uh, now, let me make sure on the uh, dating that the Book of Mormon claims. Um, in some of the versions, maybe all of them, they'll put a date down at That's the bottom correct. of each page. Yes. And um, so there in the Book of Mormon, where the Sermon on the Mount is being recorded, where Jesus is speaking, what is the time period? Is it around 30 A.D.? Do yes. they give a date like that? The traditional date for the sermon in its Book of Mormon context is A.D. 34. Okay. Now, unlike the Bible, the Book of Mormon is obsessed with giving chronological information of a very precise nature. There's actually a countdown, annual countdown, uh, to the date of the birth of Jesus uh, in the Book of Mormon. And then there is a, a, there are a number of chronological markers after the birth of Jesus to tell us exactly how many years have, have transpired since that event. Mm-hmm. And so 
although the Book of Mormon doesn't give us a, a precise day uh, for this sermon, it's clearly a, about A.D. 34. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Book of Mormon's also obsessive about telling us who's writing everything down. As you know, the Bible uh, contains many books where the author is never identified by name. There may be traditions regarding the matter, but there are no... Uh, I, Moses, you know, inspired of God, have chosen to write this down. In mm-hmm. the beginning was the heaven, you know, God. You know, that's not in, you don't find that kind of thing in the Bible. You do find it obsessively throughout the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. The reason why is because modern people are obsessed with who wrote it. Sure. Ancient people didn't care. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and the ancient authors, for narratives particularly, obviously mm-hmm. if you're writing a letter, you mm-hmm. identify yourself at sure. the beginning of the letter in ancient letters, like we see in Paul's epistles. But most of the rest of the books of the Bible, the author never refers to himself by name. So that's another indication of the modernity of mm-hmm. the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I noticed the very first time I picked up a Book of Mormon, I was in college, and uh, I noticed two things, that dating at the bottom, and uh, I noticed immediately terms that were being used that the date at the bottom said, uh, for example, 500 B.C., but there were terms like Gentile, church, Jew, and Bible. Right. And I knew right away those were terms that could not, were not used back at that point in time, 500 B.C. Correct. And um, so what do all these things tell us about Joseph Smith? Well, there's a lot of anachronistic language in the Book of Mormon, and some of it's even more surprising than that. So, for example... The Book of Mormon has pre-Christian prophets predicting Jesus Christ by name, actually referring Mm -hmm. to him as Jesus Christ, telling us uh, that he's going to be born of a virgin, telling us that he's going to be crucified, and that uses that term. Mm -hmm. Crucifixion was Mm -hmm. not something that was happening in four or 500 BC, uh, at least not something that uh, was affecting uh, Israelites. Uh, Crucifixion really becomes a big deal under the Greeks, but especially the Romans. Uh, Yes. A little bit under the the Greeks, but that's after Mm -hmm. Nephi's family would have left, you know, uh, according to the Book of Mormon. So it's a lot of uh, anachronistic things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even silly things like uh, a pre-Christian Nephite prophet telling us the location, according to the Gospel of John, where uh, John the Baptist was going to be and Jesus were going to be baptizing it's a location that would be meaningless to a Nephite, uh, and there's no reason for it except to show off to the modern reader that sure. this prophet supposedly knew where it was. Bethabara sure. is what it's called in the mm-hmm. King James Version, and that term is used mm-hmm. in the Book of Mormon. So there's a lot of that. And the reason why you see this, other than, as I said, showing off, mm-hmm. is because Joseph Smith believed that there was a problem with the Old Testament, and that is it's not transparently clear in its prophecies about Christ. And many people in Joseph Smith's day thought that was a problem. Mm-hmm. Why aren't they clear? And even some people today think that's a problem. So Joseph fixed that problem, supposedly, by having mm-hmm. prophets in the Book of Mormon prior to the coming of Christ, speaking in very explicit, plain terms about the coming of Jesus. Hmm. Now, your dissertation you mentioned is very long. (laughs) So in dealing with that in the Sermon on the Mount in the Book of Mormon, tell me a little bit about your dissertation. Were you looking at word use? Was it more focused on Joseph Smith? What's in your 
dissertation? Well, I tried to look at all of the different issues that would be pertinent to determining whether this is an authentic speech given by Jesus in the first century and mm-hmm. and quoted by whoever wrote it down in the ancient world, or whether we can show uh, with any confidence that it's really a modern concoction based on the King James Version. Now, the verbal dependence on the King James Version would be enough to establish in, I think, any unbiased mind that it is modern in origin. However, sure. there's more to it than that. And my favorite part of the dissertation is where I show that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, in its Greek version in Matthew, in the King James Version as it's quoting it, uh, and in the Book of Mormon uh, use of the King James Version, in that sermon as we find it in Matthew, Jesus is talking in terms that would be meaningful in his Galilean first century Jewish context Mm -hmm. under Roman occupation and would be meaningless to the Nephites who have supposedly been living in another hemisphere Mm -hmm. for almost six centuries and wouldn't have the cultural frames of reference. Indeed, for example, I'll just give you one example. We could do many. In Matthew 6, Jesus has about a half a dozen allusions to the Greek theater, which there was one in Galilee. Uh, the the whole business of hypocrisy, which is a mask, that's a theatrical yes. reference. And right. a number of other things uh, in Matthew 6 are allusions to the Greek theater. It would be very meaningful and uh, probably humorous to mm-hmm. Jesus' Galilean listeners in the first century. Uh, it would be meaningless to Nephites. Mm-hmm. And so... Is Jesus actually saying those things to the Nephites, or has uh, Joseph Smith simply copied from Mm -hmm. Matthew in the King James Version? Well, the latter is clearly the case. Mm -hmm. Now, you could excuse one or two of these things, but it is a pervasive problem throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It is all contextualized in Jesus' cultural situation. It would be as ludicrous, more ludicrous, in fact, Uh, than Billy Graham, let's say, flying to another country and preaching a sermon there and ignoring the context of the people to whom he is speaking and just Mm -hmm. pulling out some sermon notes that he preached in New York 40 years earlier. Sure, sure. Uh, It it wouldn't make, even Billy Graham or any modern preacher, even I wouldn't do that. I would Mm -hmm. try to be respectful of the fact that my listeners might not know Mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, something going on on TV in our culture or something. But yet Jesus supposedly goes to the Nephite civilization and preaches to them a message that is thoroughly contextualized for a different culture. I mean, this is anybody that has talked to someone from another country uh, across cultural barriers understands that it's really hard to take an idiom here that we understand and translate it there. And this is going to show how uh, old I am. But, um, you know, nobody in another country would understand George uh, Bush's term, where's the beef, the first George Bush. But uh, that is something that where's the beef was something everybody in America used, and it was connected to a commercial. So it's kind of that sort of thing That's in a right. sense. Yeah. Now, um, did Joseph Smith speak Greek? Did he read or, or speak? Did he read or write Greek? No, he was not able to read uh, or work with any of the ancient languages that we find in the Bible, or certainly any of the ancient languages that might have been relevant to what was supposedly on the gold plates. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting story about that I'll try to give really briefly. According sure. to Joseph Smith, in one of the Mormon scriptures called Joseph Smith History, 
Joseph, before he's translated the plates, uh, wrote down part of some of the characters, just a you know few lines of characters, and provided an English translation underneath, gave the paper to his first financial backer, a farmer named Martin Harris, sent Martin off to New York City to talk to some classic scholars, one of whom was Charles Anthon. According to Joseph Smith's story, Anthon authenticated the transcript and the translation as an accurate translation of the characters before finding out that it was tra- uh, copied from gold plates and tearing up the paper. Hmm. Well, that's an impossible story because nobody in 1828 in the Western Hemisphere could even begin to decipher ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. The Rosetta Stone had only just begun to be cracked Mm -hmm. by uh, scholars in France, and uh, that they didn't even know how to do it very well. And so Joseph Smith's story isn't, isn't... isn't just implausible, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. In fact, the Book of Mormon says that the Nephites had altered the script uh, in their own culture, and so nobody would be able to read it. Mm-hmm. Yet Joseph's making up this crazy story about Charles Anthon saying, this is the best translation from the Egyptian I've ever seen. Um, how many translations had he seen from ancient Egyptians? Zero. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. yes, Joseph didn't know what he was doing with the languages. This problem came back uh, again when he translated, supposedly, some ancient Egyptian papyri that the church pur- purchased in 1835 and claimed that one of them contained the writings of Abraham, the biblical yes. prophet, and yes. is called the Book of Abraham. And later on in the 20th century, those papyri or fragments of the papyri were discovered, translated by Egyptologists, including some Mormon Egyptologists, and discovered to have nothing whatsoever to do with Abraham. This was quite a scandal. I mean, not a thing to do with Abraham. Go ahead, tell That's us right. about what well, that was. Well, it turned out that uh, these were Egyptian, pagan Egyptian funeral texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically providing some guidance and instructions for the safe passage of the departed to the spirit world mm-hmm. uh, involving Anubis and other Egyptian gods. Uh, there's just no connection whatsoever, whatsoever to the Bible, let alone to Abraham. Joseph actually interpreted some drawings that were on the papyri uh, and claimed that these drawings had to do with Abraham and also with Abraham's uh, instructions uh, uh, in the Book of Abraham re- mm-hmm. and teachings regarding astronomy, mm-hmm. which is basically warmed over 19th century <laughs> astronomy. <laughs> and uh, uh, the main drawing here it, it does not depict Abraham almost being sacrificed on an altar by the Pharaoh, as Joseph claimed, but it is rather Anubis standing over mm-hmm. uh, the de- recently departed and helping him uh, make safe tr- uh, passage uh, across the uh, you know the river <laughs> uh, to the afterworld to the to the afterlife and so he completely misidentified what the drawing was about and he was able to get away with that for i mean nobody challenged this for over 100 years because the Rosetta stone people didn't know what this Egyptian well, I do need to uh, make a little bit of a correction there, and that okay. is actually uh, before the 19th century was over, uh, uh, Egyptian uh, Egyptology was okay. well enough advanced that even without the papyri, just based on the drawing ah. that Joseph had interpreted, okay. uh, that academics were able to correct 
uh, him and to say, no, that's not what that means. Mm -hmm. And various books were published and articles were published that went into this. Now, those people were at the early stages of Egyptology, so they Mm -hmm. weren't perfect in what they said. But Mm -hmm. by and large, what they said has stood up in the subsequent hundred plus years since they wrote about it and, and has been substantiated by the discovery of the papyri fragments uh, in the 1960s. So there, even before the fragments were found, mm-hmm. uh, Joseph's uh, interpretation of that particular vignette uh, mm-hmm. known in, in the Book of Abraham as facsimile one was exposed as mm-hmm. incorrect. But obviously, once the fragments themselves showed up and people were able to take a much closer look at it, uh, the, the analysis was even more definitive. There was a problem. Uh, two questions. Where is the... Um, where is the Book of, of Abraham? Is it in the Book of Mormon? No, the Book of Abraham is a separate little book mm-hmm. that's in another part of the Mormon scriptures, another canon of scriptures called the Pearl of Great Price. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the fragments are, you know, the, the church owns the fragments, but the book itself, the little Book of Abraham that Joseph composed, mm-hmm. which is based largely on revising Genesis 1, 2, 13, and 14, mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, with some additional material, uh, that is in this other canonical uh, collection called Pearl of Great Price. Okay. Um, I want to get to the Trinity for just a moment because you've done so much work with that. And um, you have many books. You're just a prolific writer. But uh, a lot of Christians have trouble explaining the Trinity, understanding the Trinity. And uh, this is something we need to be better at as as Christians. So I'd like to hear if you have any uh, tips on that, but particularly, how do we explain who God is to children? I'd like to hear your thoughts. That's a very interesting question. Uh, I do think that we should not expect uh, children, especially small children, to understand uh, the doctrine of the Trinity in any kind of sophisticated fashion. Uh, I think we need to provide them with a kind of an analogy or a, a way of describing it that is close enough mm-hmm. for them to get the point. So here's the way, I, and this isn't going to be far different from what I would tell an adult, but uh, we'll, you know, we'll try to keep it very simple. I would say that the easiest way to think about the Trinity is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are like three three persons that mm-hmm. you would meet, except they're God. They're very different. So for example, uh, as divine persons. They don't have bodies. They're not limited to a physical location. Uh, so they're, they're not separate entities that have mm-hmm. to get together for a meeting and find out what each other thinks. Mm-hmm. The three divine persons have always existed as divine. They've, they didn't become gods. They are God. They've mm-hmm. always been God. They always will be. And nobody and nothing else can ever become God. So this is a Uh, a a permanent situation that's always been the case, even before the world existed, if we can use that terminology, I think with children we could. Yes. Uh, Then God has simply always been God, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been united uh, as the divine creator of all things uh, from the very beginning. They share the same knowledge. Each person knows what the other person knows and always has and always will. as I said, they don't have bodies, so they're not separate entities. Uh, each person is fully divine, fully mm-hmm. God, fully mm-hmm. worthy of our honor and worship and obedience and love mm-hmm. and reverence. Uh, there are certain ways in which we do that according to the New Testament. We, we pray to the Father and to the Son, Jesus Christ, uh, 
the Holy Spirit lives inside us. So we don't pray to the Holy Spirit, but we pray in the Spirit. The mm -hmm. Holy Spirit helps us to pray, mm -hmm. helps us to communicate, mm -hmm. and to, uh, to uh, have fellowship with the Father and the Son. We don't do that with the Holy Spirit because he's inside us and he's invisible and hidden to us. Uh, in a very, you know, almost subjective way. So we don't try to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is working in us. And Paul talks about this, for example, in Romans chapter 8. So once someone understands that the three persons share this unique divine nature, they're not anything like us in right. those ways, yes. and yet they're persons. They're capable of knowing and loving mm -hmm. and caring and wanting to honor each other as well as to bring uh, love and glory and life to us, then I think uh, anyone at that point has a basic enough understanding so that, okay, maybe they don't understand such ideas as um, uh, how the three persons can be one in being. Yes. That's a tough one. Yes. What mm -hmm. we want to make sure is that people understand, particularly uh, adults who you know are going to be asking these questions, is that uh, if you use the term one being with reference to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, don't misunderstand this to mean that these are uh, just three different roles that mm -hmm. one person plays. Mm -hmm. It's not that God yes. sometimes acts as Father and sometimes acts as Son, right. or that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three different roles he has, just like I'm a dad to my kids, but I'm a son to my dad. No, that's not how it works, because the Father and the Son are in an eternal relationship with one another, and the Son was sent by the Father. He didn't send himself. Jesus didn't pray to himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right. So if we make these kinds of things uh, clear and admit that this, this God is very much beyond our full comprehension. And mm -hmm. I think it might be liberating to tell a child, you know what, I'm a grown-up and I've been thinking about this for years and I don't fully comprehend it. That's but that's point. because God himself is beyond our comprehension. Yes. He is eternal. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at the yes. same time. Mm -hmm. And when children are old enough to understand, we can say, you know how when you were a little child, we talked about Santa Claus. It was a kind of fun make-believe thing, but Santa Claus isn't actually knowing what you're doing when you're awake and asleep. Well, that's Santa Claus couldn't do that because he's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't have those that's kinds of attributes. Mm -hmm. God does. God is real. He's not make-believe. But because he has this unique being, he is going to be full uh, beyond our full comprehension. We can know what we need to know to have a relationship with him and love him, mm -hmm. uh, but we're always going to be in awe uh, because he's very different from us. Excellent. And uh, I love the term that, that we always use to describe the, the Trinity. It's three persons in one God. That's right. Three persons, one being. And I think if we stay with that, that's going to be very helpful. This has been great. I appreciate all that you do. I appreciate your books, your work in so many different directions, and this has been helpful today. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Hey, it's Gary and Joe here again. Would you do us a favor? If you like this podcast, go to iTunes and leave us a review. This would mean the world to us. Thanks. <laughs>